You Can Change. Tim Chester is the author. We're surveying this book in a study of sanctification for these summer months. In chapter one, we ask the question, what do you want to change? And we're asked to call to mind areas in our Christian lives where we'd like to see growth or improvement. The question that remained in that chapter was, is our desire for change as big as God's desire for change? So we see kind of the fruit of behavior, and we want that to change. And the chapter was calling us to get back to the heart issue, remembering God's desires to change our heart so that we become more like Christ. Uh, And we do that, uh, as the scriptures tell us, by beholding our God. By beholding him, we will become like him. In chapter 2, we ask the question, why do you want to change? We brainstormed on some motivation for change. Sometimes it's to please others. Sometimes we think we need to change in order to be more pleasing to God, more acceptable to him. Uh, Or... There are those times when our desire for change is very selfish, it's very introspective, and we try to change to be a better version of ourselves. All these reasons will be insufficient, uh, and we need to get back to understanding that uh, we are not trying to achieve a standing with God, but rather we have a standing with God and we're to act out that standing. Uh, We become what we already are. We're called to be saints. That's what God says we are, so now we live like it. All right, in chapter 3 now, he begins exploring the question, how are we going to change? Um, And there's not one answer in this chapter or in this discussion this morning. It's really just opening the door to how does this change process occur? Maybe there have been times in your Christian life where uh, in discouragement over repeated sin, that sin which so easily besets or slows us down or trips us up, there have been those moments where we think somehow we are a lost cause. Other people might be able to change, but not me. Too much history, too many problems, too many struggles, My upbringing, the past, everything works against me so that it just seems like I'm never going to be anything more than I am. Um, And the devil is really good about putting billboards up all around you in those moments that remind you of your, your failure, your sin, your past. In those moments, we have to come to grips with this Bible study of sanctification. What will this change look like? What do I want to change? Why do I want to change? And now, how is that going to happen? When it looks like my track record is continual failure. Not that I've never resolved to do better. And if you are familiar with a church with altar calls, maybe you've come at an invitation or perhaps you just sat in your seat and heard the word and said, that's for me, that's what I need. From now on, I'm not going to and you fill in the blank, and maybe you wrote it down somewhere in a journal or put a date in your Bible because you were serious about it. And you were. But that was just another kind of bright spot in what became a long history of just 
ups and downs and, and continual failure. It just didn't last, or at least your resolve didn't work. Well, in Colossians 2, we start gaining some insight here as to why at times our resolve or our desire to conform to the standard isn't sufficient for helping us to change. Writing to the Colossians, Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, beginning in verse 20, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? You might have a big dash there, so we're thinking of words like such as, do not handle, or do not taste, or do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. So, why do you submit to these regulations, now picking up in verse 22, according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. He's, He's calling us back to our standing in Christ, and if we're sure of what that is, why are we reverting back to these these regulations that could be labeled? Uh, somewhat despairingly as just religious standards. Here's the religious behavior that kind of defines goodness. So try to do these things. But they're, they're really just addressing that exterior. So he calls them these standards that are according to human precepts and teaching. They have an appearance of wisdom. It's not that anyone would say, that's a bad idea. Don't, don't aim for that. No, the, the, the standard is right. It, it, it encourages a good thing. It has this appearance of wisdom. But the, the word appearance then is tied to what unfolds after this wisdom. The appearance of wisdom in promoting a self-made religion, asceticism and severity to the body, this looking a certain way or this, um, this kind of being down on myself, the, the severity to the body. I'm, I'm going to make sure I don't do that. Uh, and it's all about curtailing outward behavior, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. We, it's almost like with that phrase, we jump over to James and we realize we are drawn away into sin when we are enticed by something that's valuable to us, something that's desirable. Uh, We indulge in it. We go after that because we believe it to be valuable. No value against the indulgence of the flesh. You see, our first instinct as we talk about change is to think, I need to do something. I need to do something different. So we hear the message about the sin, we're convicted, and immediately we think, I need to do something. So give me the do. Show me what to do. Give me the rules, and I'll keep them, because I feel this resolve now to do better. Again, are rules bad? No. All the boundaries and rules and commands that God gives, he says, are not grievous to us. They're they're just helpful signs to steer us down this path of worshiping with our obedience. So rules aren't bad, standards aren't bad, but 
if we gravitate to those first and bypass the heart of change, then those things will prove to be, as Paul says, uh, just self-made religion. That has an appearance of wisdom. It was had some right stuff about it, but all we were thinking was, give me a new set of rules, something different to do. I've been doing this, and that's defined as bad. Show me the good, and, and I'll just do those things. That's our instinct. Do something. It's just that external activities don't change us. And so if we're not careful, we ride this roller coaster of, of yielding to temptation and we sin and then we're convicted and so we resolve to do better and that resolve isn't wrong. So hear me when we say we're not saying don't ever say, I want to live holy. No, that's a good thing to say. We just have to know how change happens and it doesn't happen by I did bad things so I'll be a good person if I'm doing good things. No, because the outward things aren't what makes us something different. It doesn't change us. According to Jesus, sin comes from within, and therefore the change must start from within. Jesus said, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. As Jesus is teaching, he's sharing all of these sins and he's just just hitting them all so that people would see all that stuff that you think of as sinfulness uh, isn't just bad things that a good person does. No, those bad things come out of a heart that is bad. Elsewhere, he would say, a bad tree produces bad fruit, a good tree produces good fruit. But even as believers on, on this path of sanctification, our eye gets fixed on the fruit. We see what's bad in others or in our own lives, and we just want to see good. We do this to ourselves, okay, I did bad, now I need to do good, and we bypass the heart. We'll do this with our kids in parenting. They did bad, so we want them to do good. And we tell them, this is what you have to do. And, and that's true. We, they do need to do what is good, but we need to steer the heart. Uh, they need to know that the heart is what God is after. We need heart change. In the early church, in Paul's day and even in our day, we, we keep wanting to look to the law uh, to make us what we should be. Now, we wouldn't use that language. We might say that was the struggle of the Pharisees or someone else, but no, I'm not trying to use the law of Moses or any other law to, to make me right, but the reality is we are. We do bad, and we think the solution is do good, when the answer is no. If I do bad, I need to see who God is. Not just do good, because Pharisees did good when so many other people were doing bad. But that goodness was a, was a shallow and self-righteous goodness. The heart hadn't changed. So we can't, we can't rely on the law to change us. I can't say, well, there's the law, I'll do that, and then I'll be a good person. That's not how that unfolds for us in Scripture. 
Yes, the list of rules came from God, but he also made it clear uh, in the Old Testament there as the people of God came and they wanted to do better. They saw the commandments written in stone. Blood was sprinkled on the commandments and on the people and this covenant was made and they were all shouting in one unified voice, we will obey. And God says, go back to your tents. I I just wish you had a heart to obey. You're all saying we're going to obey and we see the external law and his burning desire was for a people to have a heart for him. God was never about just, just keep these external rules. He was always wanting the heart. And he knew that the law wasn't going to create in them a new heart. So his promise was, there will come a day when I will put a new heart within you so that you can keep the law. So we can't just change the doing. Doing will change. That's, that's the whole point of the Christian life. But it changes because we become a new creature. And that new heart within us is fleshing out a different kind of doing. Paul, earlier in Colossians 2, back in verse 6, says, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Something happened. Christ, by his Spirit, took up residence and makes us a new creation, and now we walk in that new life. He goes on to say, Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So something's different here. On the outside, it would look the same. There's this abounding in this godly life. Later in Colossians, though, that that godly look is called an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. So somehow, there's, there's a path that can lead to outward stuff that looks good, but only one of those paths is because Christ has taken up residence and has made us a new creature. He's changing the heart. The law can't do that. The law doesn't take residence in the heart and change us. That's the work of the Spirit. So what can the law do? Let's let's think back through church history. You could go back to the post-Reformation era as confessions tried to articulate the purpose of the law for the life of the believer now in striving for sanctification. We can go to Scripture and find similar ideas because the guys that were putting that in confessions got those ideas from Scripture. What, what do you think is a purpose of the law? And by law, you know, I'm thinking more uh, certain kind of codifications of the law You know, in the Garden of Eden, there was only one law written in the code, and it was, don't eat of this tree. Um, By the time you get to Moses, the code of the law takes a little bit more shape. We think of ten broad commandments, but add to that all of Leviticus and uh, Numbers and all the law that's recorded, and the Jews would have totaled up 613 laws uh, that show us, okay, here's the law of God, What are we saying is the purpose of that for us as we look back on all these laws that unfold in Scripture? So that's the question. What is the purpose of the law? What do you think? You might remember some of the stated purposes, but 
your answer might just walk right into one of those clearly stated purposes. What do you think? Reveals our sin. It reveals our sin. Uh, when we when we look into the law, we are looking into a standard, yes, but it's a standard that flows from the character of God. So God is holy. He is all this virtue and Every character quality that we think of is the character of God. We only know those virtues because God is those things. So the law is revealing this standard of holiness. And when we look at that, we realize that is not where I am. And so this first use of the law is actually to teach us, to teach us what sin is and that we are sinners It's been called a pedagogical use. You know, if you go to school to teach piano, you study piano pedagogy. That pedagogue is a word for teaching. So the teaching purpose of the law is to teach us that we are sinful in relation to God's holiness. It shows us that we can't change ourselves, that we're not good enough. But... It also teaches us and leads us to our need for Christ. And so Paul would write of the law that it was a schoolmaster. It was like that tutor that would, that would take a struggling student and lead them to an understanding of something better. So the, school, the, the pedagogical use or often simply put the mirror we look at the law and we, we come to know sin and it's the sin of our own hearts. So yes, it, it shows us something. What else does the law do? What do you think? Yeah, Paul? You kind of raised that, but it reveals the glory and nature of God. Yes, and so eventually it, the, the goal here is to steer us back to the glory of God. Yes, we see we've fallen short of something, well, what is that standard? It's the glory of God. Uh, that's the big picture from the start in Genesis. Everything is made for the glory of God, including humanity, and they're supposed to reflect his glory and his image, and they fall short of doing that. Uh, all right, what else? Going to give it a stab, Daniel? Uh, I think it's kind of apparent what you said. It's kind of the sinner on one side and the glory of God on the other so there's a great gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness. Um, I remember trying to f- figure out theology. It was in the early days of the church even, and, and R.C. Sproul saying, when you get to Genesis 3 and this fall into sin, you now have the great question that all humanity has to answer. How can sinners be made right with a holy God? How did they do that? They had it, but it was lost when they chose to sin. How can you go back? That's the great question. How can we be made right with the holy God? And, and the answer right there in Genesis, as they sin, is you can't. There's no going back. You don't just undo that. There needs to be a remedy. There needs to be some kind of rescue, some salvation. I would say all this, we're still, we still kind of are in this teaching aspect of the law. Um, how is the law helpful 
in, in a practical way in the Christian life, especially um, in the context of the will of God. So what would the law be good for when we're talking about knowing God's will? That conversation happens often, practical ways. Yeah, Carson? Like teaching you what God's justice looks like? Yeah. Uh, we, we'll call this uh, the normative use because it's, it's most often what people think of. The law shows us what God wants. How do we please this holy God? Well, he's told us how to please him. In the garden, it was, don't eat of this tree. That's how you demonstrate your love for me. To borrow from Jesus' words to his disciples, if you love me, keep my commandments. But he's given us those commandments. He's revealed his will to us. So the normative use of the law is it reveals what is pleasing to God. It shows us how to obey him, how to glorify him by doing what he wants. He's not some pagan God that we're never quite sure if we've pleased him, so we keep making sacrifices and bringing other food and sacrificing to it, hoping to please this God. We don't have to hope. We know how that works. And even even then, we're kind of tied to that first use because we realize, I don't please him perfectly. So we enter the rescuer, the savior, who keeps God's will perfectly, perfectly pleases the father. And now we find our acceptance with God when we are in the one who kept God's will perfectly. So when you read John 15, 16, and 17 and hear Christ pray and say, I've kept all your will, father, I've done everything that's pleased you. And this was for the good of your people. When we read that, it's not just, oh, I'm looking at some moment with Jesus and his father. It's, no, that's significant because that's revealing to us our hope for pleasing God is found in him. And so the law now, use number one, it shows us holiness and sinfulness and leads us to our need for Christ. Use number two, it reveals his will. It shows us how to please him. So when we look at the law as it unfolds in various forms throughout Scripture, one of the purposes in our minds is to show us how to please God. Now, that may need some interpretation because some of those laws in the Old Testament, you'd be thinking, do I need to do this to please God? Like, do I need to be mindful not to cut down fruit trees in a time of war? Because that was one of the commands, but I I don't know that I've been keeping that in my mind No, there's some helpful understanding of what God was doing in that era, what happens when Christ comes, old covenant and new covenant. There's a lot to think on, but we can't miss the reality that when God speaks and gives boundaries, he's revealing to his people how they can please him, how they can be set apart to him. One other use. It's pretty significant uh, for our day and age, especially in the last probably decade, uh, conversations about, you know, politics and what defines the greatness of a nation, uh, nationalism, Christian nationalism. There's a lot of thoughts there, and they could rightly be uh, discussed from a foundation of this third purpose of the law, which would be some kind of civil use. The law restrains evil. It puts boundaries in place. 
Now you say, but wait a minute, not everybody keeps the law. Not everybody abides by the moral standards. Well, it's interesting, though, that when you read Romans, we do see clearly there's going to be a heart of unbelief that rejects God. But you keep reading and you realize, but it seems as though something of God's law is written into their hearts. And they're actually searing their conscience and refusing to even entertain or hear that message of the law. And yet still it exists. They, they can't bury their head in the sand enough to escape the reality that if, if somebody in your family is murdered, you naturally react to that and you want revenge, you want justice, you want something to be made right. Even just in our little corner of the world, our big corner of the world, there has always been what's called the Judeo-Christian ethic or this Judeo-Christian standard of morality. Now, it's, it's pretty flimsy at this point. Uh, generations and generations of decline morally uh, have kind of led to that not having much of a standing any longer. But even that very concept of this kind of lingering ethic over an entire nation is kind of evidence that the law provides this moral oughtness to society. And societies will always have some kind of law. It might come from a dictator, but he will have some sense of this is the way it should be. It may be misguided and from a heart of unbelief and selfishness and sin, but the sense that there is oughtness, that people should have to be or do, that comes from the law, from God's law. And his law is given to restrain evil, to cause people to know that there are boundaries of justice and morality. Uh, again, they won't always agree to them, articulate them, or say they believe them, but it, it doesn't make those boundaries and those truths about what is right and what is wrong any less true. And so the law has its teaching use, teaches us our sin and our need for a savior, it has its normative use, which is to show us what God wants. This is the way. Walk in it. And it restrains evil. It does have a use even in uh, broad relationships that we call society or culture. It can be governed by moral oughtness. So that's what the law can do. And yet we, we still come back to the bottom line, what the law cannot do. It cannot make us righteous. It cannot change us. We cannot do things exteriorly that work their way in. That's not what Jesus said. He said, this stuff works its way out. And for a while, people are good about keeping anger and adultery and envy and hatred in. And it comes out, and we're all shocked, and we say things like, well, I just, I just never saw that coming, or I never thought they could do that. Or people who did that will say, well, that's not me. You know, athletes do this all the time because they have agents that are releasing statements, and, you know, they, they do something crazy. Uh, even outside the bounds of the law, they get in trouble, and their statement is, you know, that's not the, the person that I am. Uh, I'm, I'm a better person than that, and I'll show by the way that I live that, you know, I, and, you know, while you appreciate some effort at 
making it right. It's also a betrayal, the fact that they don't realize Jesus said, no, there's a reason that came out. It became out because it was already in there. It's that law, the teabag that you may have heard in either leadership or, or biblical teaching where, you know, you drop a teabag in hot water and it seeps out into that water and it becomes tea, liquid tea, not just tea from a leaf because that hot water brought out what was inside that tea bag. It's not a miracle that you dropped the bag in and it made tea. No, what was inside came out. And if we asked, you know, one of your toddlers to, you know, carry a cup of water without a lid all the way down the aisle so I could get a drink in the middle of the sermon, by the time you got to the steps and started coming up the steps with a full glass, it's probably sloshing out. And when your envy and your lust and your anger come out, we, we can't say, oh, that's not me. That, that wasn't in my glass. It's exactly what was there. Your heart was full of that, and it just overflowed in the right moment when the hot water was applied. You see, the law can't change us from the outside in. Christ has to change us from the inside out. And so... There is a linear path. We do need to go from don't do this to do this. But the Bible has a path for that. It spells out the actual course there. And and somewhere in that course of change is that beholding from 2 Corinthians 3. Beholding we become. Beholding him by looking into the perfect law of liberty, beholding our God, we're changed. So it's that beholding that brings about this change from not doing this because I do see my sinfulness. That's not the character of Christ that God's trying to work in me. So I have to change. But before I just jump to don't do that, do this, we have to take that full path of what's in my heart. I need to I need change in my heart. God, you have to change my heart so that my heart does these good things because it's an act of worship and obedience, not because I've just gone from doing bad to doing good. We can't bypass the beholding. Uh, God has to do that changing in us by revealing himself to us. Which means at times, if we've gone just from being bad to I'll do better, I'll try to do good, and never took any time to worship, never took any time to behold so that I would become something different, then it may mean we need to repent, the author says, of our righteousness. You say, I've never heard of repenting of righteousness. Well, we have to define righteousness here. It's this righteousness of just doing the outward good things. Because we thought, okay, if I did bad, then I need to do good. So, I'll I'll, I'll busy myself doing good things. But it goes back to chapter 2. Why? Why why do you need to change? Why do you not do bad things? Why do you feel you need to do the good things? What's your motivation for that? If it's the wrong motivation and it's not because God wants to change my heart and make me like Christ, then those good things aren't counting as good things. I re- I need to repent of righteousness, of trying to make myself look good instead of letting Christ look good in me. So repenting of righteousness is a, is a helpful, thought-provoking statement that keeps us from bypassing heart change and just changing what's on the outside. 
I can remember dad leaving lists of chores for us every morning to do. He'd be gone at way early in the morning, so we'd get up in those summer days and there'd be the list of chores. And one of those chores would often be weeding. Well, the easiest way to weed is just to pick all the leaves right off the surface. You know, if there's dandelions or anything coming up, you know, you just kind of pick the the, the leaves right off, and you could be done in no time. You just kind of yank them all off. The problem is, a couple days later on the chore chart is going to be weeding. Uh, there it is again. Um, and that process of just kind of dealing with the fruit and never dealing with the root is, is the pitfall here. I did bad things, so kind of pick that off. Whoops, I'm sorry about being angry, and I'll try to be sweet. And now we just kind of we're mindful, man, a couple days ago I really lost it. I just need to be on my best behavior. The problem is you're carrying a glass of anger and you're not dealing with the root. So we have to dig down. And so you, you get that root out of that dandelion, get all that white tap root out, and you have a better chance of not weeding for a while. So they're simple counseling models that will work on this roots and fruits idea. Somebody comes in with their problem and they're defining all this outburst of this and pursuing that and, you know, wanting this and and that's all the fruit. And then we start asking questions as to as to why what's going on in the heart? What's the void being filled by this pursuit or what's causing that anger? And you realize roots and fruits is important and you can do that to yourself. You can you can counsel yourself here. And before you say, oh, I'm sorry for that angry outburst. I didn't mean that. Well, you might not have meant to intentionally hurt that person or, but you didn't have a choice as to the meaning. You had a choice back at the heart and that's what you need to deal with. The problem is we, we love the rules that make us look righteous. In essence, it's the whole thing theme of legalism, not a legalism even in our salvation that somehow works have a part in it, but kind of an ongoing lingering essence of legalism. It makes holiness more manageable. It's just simpler. Just tell me what to do this week and I'll work hard at that. I will. But that's easy. Uh, Give me 10 commandments And I can probably cope better with that, or it probably will seem more manageable than giving me two commandments, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, because I'm going to have to wrestle with that. That, That's always going to hang over me. Now I can't just do outward things. I can't just not covet or not commit adultery or not lie or steal or cheat from my neighbor. Um, But now... It might not even be enough to just be nice and begrudgingly lend a tool to my neighbor, mumbling under my breath the last time I did that. He broke the handle of my axe. Because now I'm told it's not just the outward action, it's the heart. Am I loving my neighbor? That's why I wanted just a command. Just give me the command. I have to be willing to lend my tools to my neighbor. Not I have to love and forgive him. That, that's really digging down deep. But this this sense of legalism wants to make holiness manageable. 
and not only manageable, it wants to make it somewhat of an achievement on our part. It, it does feel good when I say, look at what I've done. But if somebody says, but was your heart really in it? Well, no. Uh, okay, well, what does it mean to love God with all your heart? Because those other commandments that govern our outward actions, those commandments rest on this essence of obedience, loving God with all my heart. So resist that legalism. None of us want to think of ourselves as legalists. But beware of Colossians 2 there, that appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, uh, which has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Change has to be God's work. John the Baptist prophesied that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit, really building on the promise that Ezekiel gave us in verse, or chapter 36 when Ezekiel prophesied the words of God, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. Jesus does what legalism can never do. It gives us a heart that is free, Romans 6 says, to do what is righteous. For the first time, we're free to do that. We're able to do that. We have the capacity for pleasing God in righteousness because he has put his spirit within us to cause us to walk in his statutes and to keep his judgments and do them. When you hear those prophecies and see them fulfilled in the work of Christ in the New Testament, we realize that to not walk in his commandments and to not keep his judgments takes effort, which means we got to be careful about just saying we, we, we fell into sin or oh, I, didn't really, I didn't really know what I was doing. It just kind of, no, because the promise was my spirit will be in you to cause you to keep my commandments. You will keep my judgments and do them. This is who you are. This is what I will make you to be, a saint who does these things. So to do anything else means I have to choose to say, I'm not going to do this. I am going back to Egypt. And just like those Israelites that we think are so, so ungrateful and wicked to be weeks into the wilderness saying, this is a disaster. Oh, that we were back in Egypt where it was so good. The prophecy of Ezekiel says we have to climb over the spirit to get over there into the flesh. Galatians says the spirit is warring against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. So we're climbing over a wall one way or the other to get what, to what we want. We're either climbing over the spirit to get to the flesh and to indulge, or we're going over the other wall and saying, forget the flesh. I'm going after what I really want, and that's the life of walking in step with the spirit. Change is God's work, and I, I think we undermine that work as it's promised to us in Ezekiel and 
elsewhere, that God's going to do such a work in us that we won't even need somebody to be saying, this is what God says you should do because it'll be written on your heart, the prophet says. If we really believe that, then we would see why Paul could so confidently write in chapter 6, you're no longer a slave to sin. You're free to be a servant of righteousness. You don't have to sin because God's promise to change is real and it's powerful. I, I get it. As soon as we say that, we can come back to Philippians chapter 1 and realize, well, the promise of God is to keep on changing us to be more like Christ until the day Christ appears. So yes, I understand you're not perfect, and you probably won't be until Christ comes back. But kind of file that away as, oh yeah, I know what's going to happen when I see Christ. And stop thinking that's the key passage of sanctification. Oh, see, I'm not perfect. Oh, I will be eventually, but not today. No, I would say work at it today. Strive today for holiness. Strive today for that life that pleases God. Strive today like Paul does. We'll get there in Acts in a few weeks where he says every day I want to have a conscience void of offense toward God and man. Strive for that because that's what the Spirit can do in you. You are free to live righteously all day today without a sin failure. That's the kind of change that God can work by his spirit in you. So think big thoughts of holiness rather than a low bar of holiness that, oh, but eventually God will get me where I need to be. That, that is completely true. Eventually he will get you where you need to be and you'll be justified and glorified. But don't lose hope or don't diminish the great goal and the great joy of the pursuit of Christ-likeness now. There's a great liberation that comes from sin. There's a great power over temptation when you start believing Romans 6 and Ezekiel 36, that I have a new heart and the spirit within me that is causing me. It's driving me forward towards righteousness. And I have to resist that in order to sin. In other words, the momentum is on your side. You know, your team was down but you have Mahomes and he just threw a touchdown bomb. You're coming back. You're still behind, but you're a lot closer and we just scored kind of like a couple of those games leading up to our first Super Bowl coming from behind and, and the crowd gets behind it and they start cheering. We were down and the crowd's sitting in their seats and running to the restroom and taking snack breaks and, and suddenly they're loud and they're not going to miss anything. Why? It's that momentum is building. This is a good sign. This is looking good. Every morning you can wake up, regardless of what yesterday was, and new morning mercies say, things are looking good. The Spirit is in me to cause me to do what's right. The crowd's roaring. We're making a go at this. And off you go. And it's not, you know, oh, I struggle with sin, and someday I'll be perfect. It's like, no. Someday I will be perfect, but today I have power to do what is right. And so take heart in this process of sanctification when we ask, how do I change? It's not just by, oh, I got to do all these things today. No, I got to behold God and know that his promise is he's going to change me so that I can do all those things today. It's possible.
So yes, we're putting off the old man and putting on the new. But putting on that new man means I behold that new man. And I'm made after his image in true holiness and righteousness. Heavenly Father, would you help us to keep thinking on this matter of change? And perhaps this morning to give us just a a taste of that hope that is ours, the, the victory that is ours over sin through Jesus Christ our Lord. May each day be the realization of his triumph over all his enemies at the cross. May we remember that he made a spectacle of his enemies, that they are defeated, and by the victory of the cross, we are set free. And now we are these servants, we are these soldiers in an ever-advancing army for this cause of the gospel. Give Give us this sense of momentum, this hope, so that even today, We would choose holiness and righteousness. We would choose Christ-likeness. We would choose to keep in step with the Spirit and not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Give us help for this victory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.